I have a little question for you. Think about your life. Think about the world that we live in, the universe that we live in. Now, it's kind of a silly question, maybe. Let's say I've got a point. If I were to give you two options, would the course of your life be more like a train car or more like a dune buggy? Would the course of your life be more like a train car or more like a dune buggy? You know, when I was a little kid, I thought that the most frustrating kind of toys were those little cars, you know, like they, they have in the front of the grocery cart, the little, you can put the, instead of putting your kids in the, in the, in the, uh, seat on the, on the buggy, they had a little, little car out in front, and it's got a little steering wheel. But it doesn't matter which way you turn that steering wheel, you're going to go wherever mom or dad pushes you, right? <laughs> but if you had the choice, would your life be more like a train car or more like a dune buggy with a steering wheel? You know, when we look at the physical world around us, we see that the world around us is governed by fixed laws. We have laws of gravity, laws of thermodynamics, laws of Newtonian physics, for example. Perhaps the best-known laws in the physical world are what we call the laws of cause and effect. And it says something like this, for every effect, there is a definite cause, and for every cause, there is a definite effect. It would seem as though there is an invisible train track, so to speak, that runs through the course of the physical world and determines from one cause precisely what the effect will be. And you know, whether we verbalize it this way or not, we learn these things from the time in our, that we are in our youngest childhood. If we see something moving, it's because somebody moved it. If we see an object changing course, it's because someone altered or something altered the course of that object. You know, that's how we build machines. That's how we build computers, even spacecraft, by observing the laws of nature and then exploiting those laws of cause and effect to our own advantage. It's how scientists have managed to forecast the weather. And although they're not very good, if you ask them what is going to happen three weeks from now, if you look at the weather forecast for tomorrow or Monday or Tuesday, chances are it's going to be pretty close, pretty good. And it begs the question, you know, does the entire universe follow these laws of cause and effect? To use a technical jargon, perhaps, we could say, is the universe deterministic? In other words, if we could measure the conditions of the universe precisely enough, could we take that snapshot in time and, and transport ourselves forward or backwards in time and to predict exactly what the universe will look like at some point in the distant future, or perhaps to rewind time and figure out where the universe came from at some distant point in the past. If we could just get a snapshot of the train track, we could see how the train goes, right? So does the universe follow these predetermined Laws, or are there elements within our universe that transcend those fixed laws of cause and effect? Now, this is a question, of course, and it's kind of very philosophical. It's something that uh, scientists and philosophers have debated really for centuries, um, perhaps for millennia. What, what determines what happens next? 
And how does that play into something that we call free will? Or our own ability to choose? I'm calling this message today, The Choice. The Choice. Is it real? And in fact, if, if uh, I'm able to, I would like to uh, preach a little series of messages. There's probably going to be four messages in this series, but this will be the first part in a series on choices. But I ask you today, the choice, is it real? Is there such a thing? Do we really have the ability to choose? Or are our choices already determined for us? You know, my background is in computer technology. Uh, I spent quite a number of years working, programming computers. Um, I'm fascinated by the way that you can, you can put things together and the, the things that computers are able to do. Now, computers, if anything in this universe follows the laws of cause and effect, computers do, or at least they're supposed to. When they don't, uh, we throw them out because they're useless to us anymore. But uh, computers unerringly follow these laws of cause and effect. But computers can talk, they can listen, they can carry on conversations, they can recognize people by their faces or by their voice. They can even drive cars seemingly intelligently, maybe not always precisely accurately, but they're working on it. But computers are classic examples of machines that follow only the laws of cause and effect. There's a saying we, we say in the computer world, garbage in, garbage out. If you, if you put the same input into a computer, it's going to give you the same output, regardless of any other circumstances. Same input gets the same output. It's inherently deterministic, we say. Incapable of making a choice of its own free will. Now, scientists have spent a lot of time peering into the particles of the atom. And... As we get down into quantum physics as opposed to Newtonian physics, now I'm getting into some technical terms here, so I'm going to run past this pretty quick. But it's interesting, if we get into quantum physics, we find systems that appear to not be deterministic. That is, they don't follow the laws of cause and effect. Perhaps it is because of our uh, inability to measure all the properties of an atom, I don't know. But it, philosophers have renewed this debate about the nature of the universe as we've delved into this realm of quantum physics. What is it that makes us human beings? What is the secret to our conscious thought, our self-awareness, our ability to recognize who we are and apparently make decisions of our own free will? You know, ancient Greek philosophers have tried to explain this mystery of our self-existence this way. You see, a, a human being is made up of two parts, a physical body and a metaphysical or spiritual soul, which are united together, but that soul is the conscious part, and the soul can have an existence even without the body. This is, this is the, the idea within Greek philosophy, and it has made its way into quite a number of different religions. On the, on the other hand, the secularist sees only the physical and says that the human brain is likely nothing more than a very highly complex computer. And if we can get computer technology advanced far enough, we can probably entirely replicate the human, human brain and understand all the laws of cause and effect that lead to this illusion of free will. Well, we could debate all day about this philosophical discussion, 
but I'm not here to debate the philosophy. I want us to open the Bible and see what the Bible says about this question. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. You know, I don't think I'd have any problem preaching every sermon that I preach, starting in Genesis 1, 2, or 3. <laughs> because um, just about everything in the Bible starts in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But Genesis chapter 2, we read, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. You see in this short verse, we see that mankind is made up, our bodies at least, of the elements of the earth, the dust of the ground. And yet there is something about us that is seemingly otherworldly. That is the breath of God that was breathed into the nostrils that made man a living soul, a living being. Is it possible that one key element of this life force that came from God is what we call the ability to choose. The gift of free will. Is it possible that God, in creating man, created within each one of us something of himself that gives us the ability to alter our own existence That is to determine our own future, even to the point of choosing whether or not we will love and serve our own creator. You know, the very first words of God to mankind. Do you know what the very first thing God ever told humankind? It's found in Genesis chapter 2 at verse 16. And God said, God sets Adam and Eve in in the midst of the garden and he says to them, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. Notice this. The very first thing God does is he sets Adam and Eve free. You may freely eat, you may choose. Of any tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But there's one caveat in verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You may choose. Any tree you want. There are many trees. Take whichever one you like except one. Now, they weren't physically prevented from eating of that tree. Perhaps we wish they were. Perhaps, perhaps we wouldn't have been in such a, 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 a miserable mess that we are in today if God had built a 12-foot chain-link fence with razor wire on top around that tree of knowledge of good and evil. But there was no fence. They could walk right up to that tree just like they could any other tree. And when one day Eve chose to walk up to that tree, she heard the voice of that snake. Has God really said She took of that fruit, of her own free will, and ate. Jesus says in John chapter 7, verse 17, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. Some translations say if anyone chooses to do his will, How do we desire after God? How do we know what God wants us to do? It all hinges on a choice. A choice of whether to know God or not. And you know, though God is sovereign king of the universe, I believe that he limits his sovereignty enough 
to respect our choice. Amen. Turn to Romans chapter 8. This is our scripture reading. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now we love that verse. And I believe this is true. Because somehow, God in his sovereign will works the circumstances of this earth so that Regardless of our choice, his kingdom can go forward. And, and, and yet the rest of this verse gets a little bit tricky for us Christians. And we could probably debate the rest of the day about the real meaning of these next two verses. Christians have, have debated this for, for many, many years. Because it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Amen. You see, there's a principle here that talks about God's knowledge. God knows from the beginning the things that we will choose to do. That's the meaning of that word, to foreknow. He knows from the beginning the things that are going to take place. And yet, if, as we have seen, God allows us to have free will, how does he know what we will choose without violating that will? Well, I have to submit to you, my friends, that there are a lot of mysteries in the word of God that I can't explain. I don't think any one of us here perhaps, can explain all of the nature of God, of who he is, and how he knows what he knows, how he does what he does. After all, if we could explain it, it wouldn't be God, right? (laughs) How could Jesus, who is God, become a man and walk in human flesh? I can understand that he did because the Bible reveals it to me, but exactly how he did it, I don't know. I may never know. And that's okay, because I can accept it from his word. But how does he foreknow? And what does it mean to be predestined? And perhaps, this is the question many Christians debate about this verse, if he predestined some to be saved, did he predestine others to be lost? Did God set up from the beginning and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save two or three of these people over here, and I'm going to just use two or three of these. Now, I'm not going to be going to give them, give them a chance. No. How do I know? For God so loved the world. How many people did God love? The world. God so loved the world. If there's any verse that every Christian in the world knows, it's got to be John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That how many? Whosoever. How many does that include? Everybody, whosoever, but wait, what's the, what's the next word? Whosoever believeth. What is belief? Trust in God. What do we have to do in order to believe? We have to trust it. 
There's a, there's a word that's very close to belief. It's not the same, but it's involved in the process of going from not believing to believing. And that is the word choice. I don't believe because somebody made me believe. I believe because I choose to believe. And by that choice, I unlock the ability of God to save me like he wants to do. You know, we could look at a great number of stories in the Bible that really illustrate this principle. Because really this principle is found all through the Bible. But I want us for just a few minutes to look at a story that's found in the first book of Samuel. First Samuel, and the story is a long-continued story, of course, of all the history of the children of Israel. So we don't have to have time to review all of that in our brief time together this morning. But the children of Israel are being judged and, and really led by the rule of the prophet Samuel. And Samuel is getting older and older and older. He has sons, but he's not raised his sons well. And his sons are not a good example of what leaders should be. But the people, are, it's not so much about his sons as much as it is the people are looking at all the nations around. And they say, the nations around all have a king. And we want a king. And Samuel, we want a king. And so they began to demand a king. Now God had been, God had set up the government of Israel without a king on purpose. Because God was their king. And they didn't need a king on earth to take the place of their king in heaven. But Samuel said, because you've asked for a king, God will give you a king. But here's what your king is going to do. He's going to oppress you. He's going to take your sons and your daughters and the fruit of your vineyards and the fruit of your fields. He's going to take all the best of the land for himself. And you're going to be sorry that you have a king. You see, God in his infinite knowledge foresaw what would be the result of their asking for a king. But he allowed them to choose. He allowed them to choose to have a king, but God said, I'm going to choose your king. You don't, you don't go around and elect your king. I'm going to choose your king. And God looked down and he saw a man whom he could trust. A man whose heart was right. Now Saul was not perfect. Saul had the seeds of pride in his heart. Saul had character flaws. We find in in First uh, Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. And in verse 2, and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Head and shoulders above any of the rest of the people. But not only was Saul tall and handsome, but Saul had a wonderful heart and a wonderful spirit. He was humble. And when Samuel came to anoint Saul, we find that there in verse 21. Saul says, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me like this? Who am I that I can be the king of Israel? I'm just a humble man from the humble tribes 
of Israel. You know, it was not because God lacked knowledge that he chose Saul. God knew that Saul would not always be faithful to him. God knew that Saul would later choose to love himself more than he loved God. Yet God chose Saul anyway. And it makes me wonder, why does God choose me? Why does God choose you? And does God pour out his love upon us even when we don't respond the way he wants us to? So God chose Saul. And I love this. I love this. In 1 Samuel 10 and verse 6, then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. Okay, Saul, I have to back up a second. Samuel is telling Saul exactly what's going to happen over the next few hours, blow by blow. You're going to meet so-and-so, and it's going to be at such and such a place, and they're going to say this to you, and then you're going to go a little further, and you're going to meet this person, and they're going to say this to you. And, and, and Saul is like blown away by this because God knows the future exactly down to the T of what's going to happen. And he's telling Saul, this is what's going to happen, and then this is what's going to happen. And, and it says there, then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. You see, like I said, Saul had, had character defects, and God knew that. But this is the story of Saul's conversion, the first Saul's conversion. And 1 Samuel 10, verses 9 and 10. So it was, when he had turned his back from Samuel, that God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. Saul, the ancient king of Israel, was a converted man. And God spoke through him. God prophesied through him. But sadly, though he was converted, though he followed God, in the beginning, it wasn't long into his reign, maybe a couple of years, before pride got the best of him. And slowly, Saul started to turn his back on God. The armies of Israel were gathered together, and they were waiting for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice. And day after day after day, they waited and waited and waited, and Samuel didn't come, and every day more and more of his troops were deserting as the enemy's forces closed in around them. And finally Saul said, you know what? I'm the king. What am I waiting for? I don't have to wait for God's prophet to come and offer a sacrifice. Now Saul was not allowed. He was never authorized to offer a sacrifice. But he went there. I don't know if he took his sword or what he used. He offered the sacrifice and no sooner had he got done offering the sacrifice. And Samuel showed up. He says, Saul, you have done very foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would establish your kingdom over Israel forever. We're in chapter 13 and verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. God gave Saul and his posterity, the kingdom of Israel. And now because of Saul's choice, 
God took it back from him and gave it to someone else who would choose to follow him. But even now, all was not lost. This was the first warning, so to speak, from Samuel. Saul still had the opportunity, like David, the next king, who many times failed. Saul had the opportunity to to repent, to turn back to God, and to come back into his favor. But he did not. And time and time and time again, God gave him more opportunities to turn back. But he would not. Until eventually, Saul would come to the point in his life where he had cut off all means of communication with God. He had spurned the messages from his prophets. He had killed the priests. And he was left with no one to talk to but himself. Finally, in desperation, the last night of his life, he chose to consult a witch, a spirit medium. And he received through that medium a message, really from Satan, of utter hopelessness. A final message from the one who had taken away Saul's freedom of choice. That message spelled Saul's doom. And the next day, discouraged and defeated, Saul took his own life. But in contrast with the life of Saul, so many others, but the life of his own son, Jonathan. A man, though he was the son of a dishonorable king who chose to be faithful to God, a man who, only with his armor-bearer, just the two of them, went and attacked and defeated a whole garrison of Philistines. A man who chose not to fear his father's wrath, even in being friends of David. And their two hearts were knit together in one. The Bible tells stories of those who have served God and those who have chosen to go against him. The Bible tells stories even of those who change, who were once God's servants, but have turned back. We read in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 12, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression." But my friends, I'm so glad that there are many, even more stories of hope in the Bible. Stories of men like another Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul, who who once in their lives lived lives of hopelessness and despair. But then they met the lovely Jesus and spent the rest of their lives serving him. Even though he was, in his own words, the chief of sinners. Yet he served a greater Savior. And yes, the Bible is filled with the accounts of men and women who chose to be loyal to God at all costs. My friends, today we've had a beautiful demonstration of this choice. Jeff and Adrian choosing publicly to acknowledge their commitment to Jesus Christ. No one forced them to do it. It was because of their love for Jesus that they made this commitment, as many others of you have done. And I want to ask if there's someone here today who has come to know the Lord Jesus, but hasn't yet committed their life to God publicly in baptism. 
I want to invite you, as we close this message, just to come up to the front. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna baptize you today, don't worry. <laughs> but if you haven't yet committed your life to God in baptism, but you want to make that choice, I want to invite you to come up. My friends, I submit to you that yes, the choice is real. No, the course of our lives is not fixed. We do not follow through life like a railroad car on a railroad track, following an invisible but preset and unchangeable course. No, today, right now, you hold your own future in your hands. Carefully consider the choices that you make, for only you can make them. And the choices that you make will impact you and those you love for eternity. You know, as I look around, I see so many people who are just coasting through life as if they were passengers on a train. They seem to feel that life is inevitable, the result of fate. And yet as I see them gliding along, I fear too many are like cars without a driver. I ask you, my friends, what will you choose? Will you choose to take control of your own life? Not just by yourself, but to put God in control of your life. To let him take the steering wheel of your car and guide you safely home. It's a choice to surrender, not just once, but day by day, moment by moment. Will you choose to let him guide your life? Because your choice today could very well determine your destiny. Joshua says, Joshua 24 and verse 15, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve. The Lord. Amen. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. We choose today to serve and follow you all the way. Lord, be with each one as we go our separate ways from here. And may we ever keep before us that choice that you have given us, Amen. the choice to be free in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>